Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And I'm here with my co-host, Alice Su. The Economist's senior China correspondent based in Taipei. That was Li Keqiang becoming China's prime minister 10 years ago in 2013. His two terms in office as China's head of government are up. And unlike Xi Jinping, he's about to step down. He was a rising star of the Communist Party, and once people tipped him as a contender to lead it. But Xi Jinping beat him to the job. This week, we're exploring who is Li Keqiang and why does his story matter? Because let's be clear, the story of Li Keqiang over the past 10 years is a story about the public sidelining of China's head of government, its chief technocrat. It's a pity that he didn't get the freedom to rule and to maneuver as we all would have liked. We'll be talking to two people who know Li Keqiang personally or professionally. Whether he's a reformer or a conservative, I think he first is a Communist Party member. And our in-house expert on Chinese elite politics, James Miles, will be helping us to decode all of this and tell us about the sea loyalist who's taking over as the next prime minister. The man who helped Tesla establish a giant factory in Shanghai, but also masterminded the two-month-long lockdown of Shanghai that caused enormous grief. This is Drumtau. From The Economist. David, how are you? How's your arm? Um, my arm is very frustrating because I can't ride a bicycle. My doctor has oh. banned me from bicycling with the phrase, no new injuries, but I'm getting some walking in. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. How was your week? My week is fine. I do miss that, biking around Beijing, and that, that is the best way to get around. So I, I really sympathize with you. So we are all preparing for changing of the guard of the people who hold government positions, like Li Keqiang, China's prime minister. We wanted to try as best as we can to get to know Li Keqiang a little bit. And I think one caveat we have to give to our listeners is that, of course, Chinese politicians, and especially these top leaders, their lives are incredibly secret. It is really quite a task for us to try to make a profile of him. The Communist Party puts out these CVs of their careers, but they just give you a little bit of biographical detail. Li Keqiang, Nan, Han Zhu. 1955年7月生,安徽定远人。1974年3月参加工作。1976年5月加入中国共产党。So that's basically a bio of comrade Li Keqiang. It says he's a man, he's Han. He was born in 1955 in Anhui. It says when he started work, when he joined the party, where he got his degree. 
you know, once these party leaders assume their positions and go out into public, they kind of speak in this political dialect. They repeat party phrases and they never go off script. Even though the party tries very hard to control all information about its top leaders, it is possible to find people who have interacted with people like Li Keqiang as he rises through the ranks of power. And that's exactly what we have done because we realized that, David, you actually are friends with two people who know Li Keqiang and have met him personally. So I'm friends with someone who was at university with Li Keqiang. And that's a big deal in China because as a classmate of a student at university, you, you might share a dormitory and you do all your classes together. You really do know people quite well. As you know, Alice, to be a tongsuya, to be a classmate, is a bond for life. And then I know someone, a Western business boss here, who knows him professionally as prime minister. So to start with his classmate, my friend Tajing Zhou, who is an international lawyer and an arbitrator based in Beijing, he was Li Keqiang's classmate in the class of 1977 at Peking University Law School, Beidar Law School. And of course, 1977 was an unbelievably important year. It was the first year back after normal education was basically suspended for a decade during the madness of the Cultural Revolution. Right, so Tao and Li were both part of this generation of what is called sent-down youth. In the Mao era in the 1960s and 70s, there were an estimated 17 million young people in China's cities who were sent down to rural areas and they had to go to perform manual labor with farmers. And so as a result of that, a whole decade passed where there were all these young people who had no education. And in 1977, finally, the Gaokao, the college entrance examination, was reinstituted, and all these people had a chance to go back to school. They had to compete against 10 years' worth of students. It was incredibly competitive, and only about 7% of the test takers got a place in university. He was actually quite old to be starting at university. And my friend Tajing Zhou was a bit younger than him, but they were both from the same province, Anhui, which is quite a sort of poor inland province. Both of them actually had fathers who were leaders of local small towns. Sometimes they used to travel back to Anhui by train together, and they were both studying law. It's very friendly, you know, ready to help people. Whenever you ask him some questions, he's ready to explain to you. Mm -hmm. Because he's more like in the middle range from age standpoint. He spent already several years in the countryside, so he's a little bit senior than most of us. Li Keqiang was a star student. He won prizes as an outstanding individual in the study of Mao Zedong thought. He was also really keen on studying English. He was a straight-A student. He got this all-excellent certificate, Chen Yusheng, mm -hmm. and he was quite silent, had a few communication with the people, really focused on study. Also, he uh, spent a lot of time studying English. And everybody remember that he had a big pocket with plenty of a car. In the one side, the Chinese, and that side, the English. Oh, wow, like flashcards to yeah, study, to study yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. Well, a small ticket. So we can be thinking like this. And we even queuing for lunch or dinner, he will read out his English car. That image is so striking. And it does remind me of something I've heard from a lot of Chinese people of that generation. It's that 
after the Cultural Revolution, they finally had a chance to access outside knowledge again, and people were so hungry to just start learning and learn as much as they could. The university at that time was a really remarkably free environment, and there was a lot of really open debate. And according to Tao Jingzhou, Li Keqiang was involved in that. In the campus, there are hardly any control. We have a conference all over the place. So conservative or liberal, you have a, a lot of choice in a, what they call triangle area of Beida. The very famous place called the Sanjiao Di. Now it's a, a Bollish story. As I was listening to Tao Jingzhou talk about it, I was thinking back, like I was at Beida in 2015, 2016, and I was thinking, what is the Sanjiao Di? Where is it? There were no public debates. And the fact that it doesn't ring a bell with you as a graduate of the same university is a remarkable kind of indicator. Yeah, and you have to think Li Keqiang experienced that himself. He experienced that, you know, blossoming of ideas and freedom to exchange. And then he becomes the prime minister who rules with Xi Jinping over this time when that space for discussion and ideas is completely crushed and shrunken, right? I just You just wonder, what does he think? And if he goes back to Beida these days, you know, what does he remember? And Li Keqiang put his English studies to good use. So he wants to understand how the rule of law worked in other countries. And he accepted a daunting project from one of his professors to produce a Chinese translation of a book by an English judge and a kind of legendary legal figure, Lord Denning. The book was The Due Process of Law. It was a really influential English book about the evolution of the common law. No free man should be taken, imprisoned, deceased, outlawed, banished, or in any way destroyed. No one we proceed against him or prosecute him, except by the lawful judgment of his peers and by the law of the land. So Li Keqiang was translating this book about the rule of law and this kind of, at this point, radical idea in China, right, that government and power could be constrained by the law. What do you make of that? Tao Jingzhou, Li Keqiang's old classmate, he's pretty clear that this work of translation was a whole mix of motives. You know, it was good for his English. And he actually struggled to find a couple of other students to join him on it because it was a lot of work. First, this book has an excellent title, Due Process of Law. You know, we always talk about the due process. Mm-hmm. So this is a certainly a very attractive book. And second, because he wanted to put his English into practice to see how able he will be in translate the foreign concept into Chinese legal terminology. Right. And the third one is because uh, our constitutional law professor trusted him. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to finish this task. And he was a liberal, the professor, no? He was very a liberal, liberal reformer. Very liberal. Huh. So we don't know at this point, is Li Keqiang just doing that for English practice? Or are these ideas also seeping in? Is he attracted to these ideas? And I guess the only way to know is then to follow what happens next, right? Once he's in power, how does he act? Do those ideas show up in anything that he does? Tao Jingzhou is pretty sure that Li Keqiang actually wants to go abroad to study after Peking University, after Beida. But he was stopped by university saying that you should not go to study abroad. You should stay in the university working in the Young Communist League. So he was uh, rather disappointed that he was not able to uh, participate in the examination. And there's the tension that a Chinese university has a university president, it has professors, but it also has a Communist Party secretary. 
And so a place like Peking University, Beida, one of the elite institutions in China, it's not just there to educate people. It's also there to talent spot the next generation of Communist Party leaders. So that's why it will always get criticized by law school leadership saying he was not focused enough. And while in the university, they always grasp him to do more student-related work. So you can see that he's being pulled between his law professors, who know what a brilliant student he is, and the university leadership who see him as a rising star. They put him in this thing, the Communist Youth League, which is a kind of talent scouting organization that spots future party members. And they want him to become a leader of students, a political leader. Hu Jintao, who was China's leader before Xi Jinping and who was very dramatically escorted out of the 20th Party Congress, is often associated with the Communist Youth League. And some analysts call it kind of a more grassroots way of rising to power, right? Because you have people like Xi Jinping who are princelings. They're born into communist power because their fathers were leaders. But people who come up through the ranks of the Youth League, they tend to have attended elite universities. When you join the Youth League, you have to make this oath. It's all about standing under the flag and pledging to struggle hard to make the homeland better and to stand together. It's all very patriotic, but in recent years, the youth league has also become very nationalistic, sometimes in, in quite a vitriolic way on social media. Under Xi Jinping, he's really pushed the youth league to be more active and engage more young people. And that's why people thought that Li Keqiang might get to the top, because as he was rising, the Communist Youth League was a really seriously powerful faction. And he became one of the youngest provincial leaders in his early 40s of a poor inland province, Henan. And people started saying that because the power of the Youth League faction was such, maybe he could be the chairman, the top leader of the Communist Party. But with big jobs also come bigger challenges. And soon after Li Keqiang became the governor of Henan province, there were two major fires in the province, which were not a good omen. He was also in charge during this huge blood buying scandal that happened in Henan. And David, you were there reporting at that time, weren't you? That's right. So in the late 1990s, there was this awful scandal that farmers and peasants in the countryside were selling blood plasma. And the way that they sold as much plasma as possible is that they would all sit linked into one shared centrifuge and they would spin off the plasma, which would be sold through hospitals. And then they would pump the blood that was left back into everyone's arms. So I went to some of these villages in Henan where people had sold their blood, you know, dozens and dozens of times for kind of $2 a time. And you had these poor people who had HIV and then later AIDS and had no idea how they'd got it. And the local officials covered it up and beat people up, prevented journalists from covering it, silenced scientists who tried to whistleblow. One of the bravest whistleblowers was a retired gynecologist, Gao Yaojie, who actually went to the press and explained what was going on? What Dr. Gao was just saying is she says they went to a village with 3,000 people and half of them were selling blood. And then 800 of them tested positive for AIDS. And she kind of says it's unbelievable. In a democratic country, you know, a scandal like that, that would mean the end of the political career of whoever is in charge. But what we saw here in China was that Li Keqiang kind of reverted to classic party methods of covering it up, 
silencing whistleblowers, punishing the people who were speaking up about what was going on. And then he got promoted. That's right, Alison. In 2004, Li Keqiang becomes party secretary of Liaoning. And Liaoning is really just a, a much bigger challenge than a province like, say, Zhejiang, where Xi Jinping was working. Because Zhejiang is a lot easier to govern and to earn your accolades as someone who is seeing fast GDP growth. And it wasn't long after you have these two rivals in these two different provinces that the rest of China and the world realized who might be pulling ahead. So at the Party Congress of 2007, all those years ago, when those men in suits walked out on stage, the latest leadership of China, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, they walk in order of seniority past a line of potted ferns. Xi Jinping was one step ahead of Li Keqiang. And suddenly everyone's guesses that Li Keqiang might become head of the party Everyone started recalculating and thinking maybe it's this red princeling, Xi Jinping, who is now in top job. And sure enough, in 2012, Xi Jinping took over as the top party leader, the general secretary, with Li Keqiang getting the job as prime minister in charge of the state council. Now, in recent memory, that job of Zhongli, prime minister, has been held by some very powerful, very high-profile men. It's always men. And that reflected this basic lesson that the rulers of China drew from the chaos of the Mao Zedong years, that if you let everything be about ideology and party slogans, the country won't grow, won't become strong, won't become rich. And so the people who took over China after the death of Chairman Mao, they separated the party and the state. The party was still at the top, but it set kind of the overall course for the country. And the technocrats, the experts, the bureaucrats, they were allowed to build institutions and government ministries to manage the economy and the country day to day. Li Keqiang was spotted as a star. He was brought up through the party ranks. He's landed in the second top position as the prime minister. But as we'll see in a moment, he soon gets undermined by Xi Jinping. We'll be back to talk about what all this means for how China is run and what it suggests for the person who's about to take over from Li Keqiang and become the next prime minister. But first, we want to remind you that you can read even more about the next generation of China's leadership in The Economist. Plus, you can read our colleague Shashank Joshi explain how it might affect the Ukraine war if China sells arms to Russia. But you will have to be a subscriber to read that article as well as the rest of The Economist. Luckily, we have a special introductory offer, and you can find it at economist.com slash drum offer. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. (music) 
So, David, we have just walked through the timeline of Li Keqiang's career and his rise to power. And finally, we land at a place where he has the number two spot and he's very qualified for it. He's the prime minister of China, but his boss is Xi Jinping. How does that play out? So at the very beginning of Li Keqiang's time as prime minister, he did seem to drop what people took as hints that he had not lost that early interest in the rule of law. So there are Li Keqiang supporters who will point to some very early statements he made where he said that the correct way for the law to govern life in China is that for businesses, for market entities, they should be allowed to strive to do anything as long as it's not forbidden by law, whereas the government, the authorities, should not do anything unless it is mandated by law. This all may sound incredibly dry, but this is communist China, where the idea that anything binds absolute power is extremely controversial. You said this might be dry, but actually to me it's not dry at all. It's remarkable to think that this is what Li Keqiang was saying as recently as 2012, because it sounds like an argument for small government and for a lot of market freedoms. And that is just so different from the direction that China has taken. But if you remember also even back in 2015 at Davos, Li Keqiang was out impressing foreign business and political elite. So this is China's economy future. Your English is excellent. By the way, Chinese government warmly welcomes a foreign investment in China. We will make sure to protect your lawful rights and uh, interests, including uh, IPR. So all credit to Li Keqiang for speaking great English, and I don't know how many Western leaders could do that in Chinese, for example. So those flashcards, as he lined up in the canteen at Beida with Tao Jingzhou, they paid off. I went to see Jörg Wutke. Now, he has been a businessman in China for decades, and he is the elected president of the European Union Chamber of Commerce, which is, I should say, far braver and more candid than the British Chamber or the American Chamber. And every year they put out these big position papers basically saying, we'd love to invest in China. We're making lots of money here, some of us. It's a huge market, but you don't actually treat us the same way. These promises haven't been kept. If you want us to stick around and invest more, this is what you need to do. And Jörg Dvutka, the head of it, is a very candid guy. One of the things that's fascinating is that he is open about the fact that when they offer constructive criticism, even if it's pretty tough, that Li Keqiang as prime minister was pleased to hear it. I'm not sure the label liberal actually fits any Chinese politician. He was certainly the most open-minded. It also helped that he was the first and only prime minister I met who actually spoke and understood English. I met him in his days in Liaoning when he was party secretary and later as vice premier. He was very curious. Uh, he always demanded a pre-copy of the position paper, also in English, in order to get himself acquainted with the topics. When Vukas started briefing him, Li Keqiang liked the outsider objectivity of the data that European businesses were giving to their Chamber of Commerce. He liked the fact that we were not biased. Did he solve many of these issues? 
single digit, I would say, every year. But he showed the interest. And again, the constraints were as they are in his prime ministership. And so in a way, it's a pity that he didn't get the freedom to rule and to maneuver as we all would have liked. There are some very visible moments where you can see the limits of Li Keqiang's power, but the fact that he still has different priorities and instincts. A classic one is at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic in 2020. So very briefly, Li Keqiang was in charge of the response, but then that was taken away from him and party propaganda was suddenly all about how Xi Jinping was commander-in-chief of a people's war against COVID. But there was this fascinating intervention when Li Keqiang, a few months into the pandemic, reminded everyone in China that there was also a massive economic cost for a country that was still very, very poor outside those gleaming coastal megacities. And he talked about 600 million people still living on less than a thousand renminbi a month. That's less than 140 US dollars a month. Yeah, David, I remember that moment so well because it was just so striking and refreshing to hear a party leader actually acknowledge that many Chinese people were having a terribly difficult time surviving the early days of zero COVID because everything else coming out at that moment was just triumphant. And I remember what a big deal Li Keqiang's speech was and how many people were talking about it online and saying, wait, is this true? Part of me does wonder what if it had been the other way around, if Li had become the party chairman, would China be different today with a leader who came out of that intellectual environment, talking with people who really advocated for reform? Would things have gone a different direction? Or is Li someone who is a party man and ultimately it doesn't matter who is in charge? It's the absolute core question, isn't it? And I think it goes back to kind of the question that historians grapple with, you know, is the great man theory of history that history is shaped by individuals and their personalities, their life stories can turn the course of the world on its axis? Or are there these just giant structural forces that China was always due to take a hard line turn back to overt party control because it's getting so much richer and stronger, bumping up against America and other Western powers, and that is creating all of these tensions? Why are we so obsessed with whether the people in charge of China are running it as Communist Party officials or as government officials, given it's often the same guys, right? Because a lot of people have government jobs and party jobs. Here's why it matters. And Jörg Vukker is really good at explaining why. Certainly for foreign businesses, China is already an extremely secretive place where it's very hard to get reliable information to understand what's going on. At least when it's a government ministry, there is some hope of finding the bureaucrats who might actually be able to kind of clear away the red tape or explain why your factory can't open or why something's just happened to you. The party is a Marxist, Leninist organization built around secrecy. It does not explain its decisions. It does not allow appeals. And so the more that the party's in charge and the less that the government's in charge, then the less predictable China is, not just for people in China, but for any foreign investor. And that's what your Vukka is worried about for the future. We have been lamenting that China became less reliable, less efficient, and also less predictable in many ways. And that's all about party policies. The party, in essence, doesn't drive a straight line, and business has to get used to it. It's all about reading the fault lines, and it's going to be a massive task for the years to come. It's a nice euphemism. The party doesn't drive in a straight line. 
That's a very delicate way of describing the challenge of navigating. It's more dangerous. China. Yeah. And it might run you over yeah. as well if you get in the way. Yeah. Just a few days before recording this podcast, Alice, if you want the final proof that we are a very long way away from the Beida, the Peking University of 1977-1978, where Li Keqiang and Ta Jingzhou are law students in this kind of atmosphere of intellectual ferment, translating British law scholars about the rule of law. Just consider the order that the Communist Party issued on February the 26th to all teachers and professors of law, demanding closer adherence to Xi Jinping's thought in legal education and telling schools to, I quote, oppose and resist Western erroneous views. What are those Western erroneous views? They're things like constitutional government, the separation of powers, and an independent judiciary. And those ideas are now so dangerous that even law schools are told that they must frame them as dangerous notions that must be resisted. Right. It's just yet another sad and depressing indicator of how much has changed in such a short time, in just 10 years, and of the implications of the party taking over the state. I asked Tai Jingzhou, Li Keqiang's old classmate, is Li Keqiang the reformer that some people say he is? And he put it like this. Whether he's a reformer or a conservative, I think he first is a Communist Party member. To help us unpack all of this, we're joined by our colleague, James Miles. He is the economist, China writer at large, but he really is one of our top China experts. He's been covering the country for the last four decades, nearly. And what he does now from his base in London is he delves into party documents for us. So if there's anyone who's well-placed to explain Li Keqiang, it's James. James, welcome to Drum Tower. Hi, Alice. So I'm curious, now we have this new coming prime minister. Can you tell us more about Li Tiang, who he is? And can you tell us more also about the implications of having such a weakened prime minister job? Well, the institution of prime minister is weaker uh, now under Xi Jinping. But Li Tiang is an interesting figure and his close connection with Xi Jinping. And it goes back to the time when Xi Jinping served as party chief of Zhejiang province. Li Tiang was his chief aide then. That connection gives him an entree to Xi Jinping that Li Keqiang would have lacked. So the fact that Li Chang is probably a more trusted person may actually give him more authority, or at least so some optimists believe, and possibly enable him to persuade Xi Jinping to do things that Li Keqiang would have found very difficult to do. But in the long run, I think Li Chang will be absolutely on the same page as Xi Jinping. And the ultimate mission is to ensure that the party stays absolutely firmly in power and in charge of absolutely everything. You've put your finger on something so important there, James. What we're really talking about is the fact that in this extremely ruthless, power-centered, one-party system, once you're the top guy, no one will ever tell you the truth. Everyone just basically sucks up to you. So the only people you can trust are people who were close to you before you were at the very, very pinnacle of power. But the price of that is that we're now waiting to see whether he uses that trust to tell home truths behind closed doors 
or whether he actually just continues to be a yes man now they're at the pinnacle of power. And I think where you stand on that, James, analysis is basically whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, right? Because it could go either way. I suspect many people in Shanghai will be wondering about that in particular, because last year we had an example of the way that Li Qiang operates. This is a man who has impressed business people. He was the man who helped Tesla establish a giant factory in Shanghai. But for all that sort of outward-looking ability to make good and effective contact with Western business leaders and others, he was the person who also masterminded the two-month-long lockdown of Shanghai that caused enormous grief that was ineptly handled and that clearly reflected a policy desire on the part of Xi Jinping, the ultimate boss, to enforce zero COVID at all costs. So he was, it seems, somebody who was not prepared to push back against the wishes of the great leader. And the result was immense suffering. And while we have you on the line, James, uh, we should ask you about uh, to read the tea leaves of the MPC, the two sessions. There are lots of rumours swirling around about really big changes where the party will grab even more power from these arms of state. What should we be looking out for? a plan for what they are describing as reform of party and state institutions. There's been much speculation that it will involve even more efforts by the party to claw power away from government agencies. One area that's been speculated about is in the domain of state security, bringing the intelligence agencies, the police, closer under the party's direct control. Symbolically, I think this will be important, even if uh, Xi Jinping controls pretty much everything already. But the message they're sending, I think, by discussing such a plan at the National People's Congress, is that even in those areas where nominally the State Council still has responsibility, it will be these party committees that primarily call the shots. It's interesting and it's really worrying and frightening at the same time. But thank you so much for joining us today, James. We really appreciate your insight and hope that you will be back again very soon. Alice and David, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Alice, if you want to think about a difference between this Chinese system and other countries, someone like Li Keqiang retiring, he might go to a university, finally become the scholar that he wasn't allowed to be all those years ago. He'd go abroad and study foreign law. He could write the great book on the rule of law, but that is not how this system works, because former leaders, their job is to stay very quiet, stay out of trouble, and every few years we'll see them pop up on the front rank of retired leaders, and we can watch how much greyer they look and say, oh my goodness, that's Lika Chang, look how grey he is. <laughs> that's right. To me, it's really ominous, because what I see is kind of a, a dramatic reversal of the changes as you said, these changes, this little bit of separation between state and party, they were instituted after the Mao era to protect China from experiencing something like that again. And now we're seeing them dismantled bit by bit. So thank you to everybody who has been listening to Drum Tower and sending us feedback. We love all of it, especially the reader who asked us if David could record himself saying Coda, Coco, Coat, 
colon, and coast, among other words that start with co. Please do send us more suggestions. You can reach us at drum at economist.com. That is a sneakily chosen list. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week with hopefully less coruscating commentary about my pronunciation of COVID. Our editor is Poppy Seaback Montefiore. Barkley Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineers are Ting Lee Lim and Nicholas Raufest, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.